Welcome back. It's Friday, 17th of May, 1946, in Betty's Adventure. And before we hear today's letter home from Bet, we might briefly explore her formal writings, her weekly report from Chengxi to the Shanghai office. This was her second report, dated the 14th of May, covering the period 4th of May to the 11th of May. Under the section of the report relating to welfare and displaced persons, there's some interesting information, and I'll read it to you as written. 1. Destitute persons. Economical, technical experts of Sinra, Changsi have furnished the following estimates. Census of the population of Changsi province. 13,400,000. Persons destitute as a result of war. 1,369,858. The percentage of destitute persons, therefore, is 10%. The area of devastated land in Nancheng was 300,000 acres. The number of farmers, therefore, unemployed in Nancheng, 57,000. The requirements of rice for each destitute person per month was 37.5 catties. Catty is a Chinese measurement. One catty is approximately 600 grams, or one and a third pounds. The total consumption of rice by destitute persons, therefore, was 308,250,000 catties, and the amount of rice required by Sinra for emergency relief for the year was 117 million catties. The scale of the relief effort in Changxi province and the challenges faced are also addressed in this report under the heading of distribution. The distribution of the 15,000 tonnes of relief supplies allocated monthly to Changxi depends almost entirely at the present time on water transportation. The lack of boats is serious. Sinra Transportation and Warehousing Division require 100 wooden barges of 60 foot in length and 50 motorboats. Clearly, everywhere you looked in the world in 1946, the need for relief was urgent. And that's a perfect segue to continue the story of UNRWA. Chapter 6 Emergency. Rush. The heart of UNRWA was its supply and shipping program. In fulfilling this program, it became a huge business enterprise. At its peak, it was the largest export-import concern, aside from a few governments, the world has ever known. The agency bought $3 billion worth of food and equipment and packed, recorded and shipped them. The details of its transactions stretched out around the globe. UNRWA was also the largest peacetime shipping business in history. The first full UNRWA cargo ship sailed in March 1945, when the last boat leaves for China, probably sometime early in 1948. UNRWA will have shipped over 25 million long tons of goods. This is more than three times post-World War I relief. A map of the globe, marked with the lines of UNRWA shipments by land and by sea, from contributing countries to ultimate consignment in receiving countries, would show every ocean and continent crisscrossed with a vast series of transportation webs 
exceeded in extent and intricacy only by military shipments during the war. If the more than 6,000 ships that carried UNRWA cargoes were massed at one time in New York Harbour and then sailed out to sea one by one in convoy formation, it would take them over three full days and nights to pass Ambrose Light. The largest number would be flying the US flag and it would be recognised immediately by any seagoing American as war-built liberties and victories. Second in registry would be British vessels and third Canadian, with practically all of the other contributing nations represented. UNRWA's transport lines originated in every conceivable source of contributed foods, raw materials and finished goods. They moved by rivers, canals, railroads and highways to scores of ports in the supplying countries, thence out across oceans and seas to the ports of receiving countries, and finally, by broken waterways, railroads and highways, down to the people who needed them. Almost every uninvaded nation, and some of those that were invaded, contributed. The manifests of UNRWA ships read like huge mail-order catalogues. Hundreds of thousands of separate items were carried. They ranged all the way from needles to locomotives and freight cars. From sulfur diazin tablets to x-ray machines and 1,000-bed hospital units. From seeds and small hand tools to threshing machines. From scissors and burlap bags to fishing boats. Hatching eggs and medicines and tractor belts were sent by air and entire ships were loaded with livestock or coal or wheat. There never was an undertaking quite like this before and almost every single item was tagged Emergency. Rush. Chapter 7. Shortages. 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 When the first UNRWA ship sailed with a relief cargo for Czechoslovakia and Poland, the Russians were well into eastern Germany. VE Day was two months away, VJ Day six months. During all of the early days when UNRWA was striving to get supplies into the war-devastated countries or the parts of them that had been liberated, it had to compete with the military for both supplies and ships. The needs of the military, naturally, had to come first. There was a shortage of everything, even of port facilities, both in this country and overseas. With the war's end, there was demobilisation, and the fact that the millions of men who could not be immediately brought home still had to be fed and housed, and still shortages, shortage of manufactured goods, of medical supplies, of essential foods and ships. It was not until late in 1945 that UNRWA was able to get all of the ship bottoms it required, and because of delays in procurement, its shipping programme to Europe originally scheduled to end in December 1946, slipped well over into 1947, with a few tag-ins still arriving in 1948. Using all of the estimates on post-war requirements made by organisations and governments, UNRWA began very soon after it was established to bid for a share of key relief supplies from the intergovernmental allocating authorities which had the say about them. 
and to stockpile those supplies against the day they could be given to those who needed them. Then, on the heels of the retreating Axis, Unra moved into country after country to make on-the-spot surveys of damage and to supervise the use of emergency supplies that began arriving. Eventually, overall estimates of both relief and rehabilitation needs were worked out by the government of each country itself, with UNRWA's assistance, and comparative budgets set. Every program, however, was constantly subject to the acid test of review and changed as circumstances warranted. Seldom, in its few years of operation, was UNRWA able to get enough of many of the commodities the countries were pleading for. In the first place, it had no sovereignty. Most of its procurement was done by national government agencies. In the United States, Treasury Department, Department of Agriculture, etc. In the United Kingdom, Ministry of Supply and the Board of Trade. In Canada, Canadian Commercial Corporation. Again, it had to depend on legislative action by various member governments for its funds. A delay in legislative action sent the best laid procurement plans awry. It was subject to the vagaries of the changing international political scene. On more than one occasion, prompt delivery of some of its commodities was delayed by strikes. Yet it fulfilled its supply program, that $3 billion program which totaled more than 25 million tonnes to with one half of 1% of its promises to the plundered nations and their peoples. We'll resume the story of UNRWA in further episodes. But now, let's hear from Betty. This is Betty Souter, UNRWA, 370 North Soochow Road, Shanghai, 17th of May, 1946. My dear Dad, this time a personal letter and not a circular. Today I am so happy. Amongst the mail from Shanghai was your cable and an air letter from Auntie Edith. There was also a letter from Miss Watson, direct from England, and a note from Tom Fippen, who is still in Shanghai. Quite the best day for a long time. But I'm still impatient for more news from home. I guess that feeling will continue however many letters I get. Marge and I are getting along together very happily here. She really is a charming girl, one of the best. We share a room and have started to dress it up and make it look like home. We shopped personally, but with an audience of at least 150 curious Chinese and an escort of five or six very youthful-looking policemen for material for our bedspreads. You can imagine the fun of buying and bargaining, choosing and trying to explain what we wanted. Fortunately, most Chinese understand European figures And we know a few phrases such as how much, too much, do not want, and the numbers from 1 to 10, 100 and 1,000. I regret to say that our accent is not always understood, but in the end, with much laughter, we get what we want. I really got the giggles when Marge was trying to explain to the Chinese boy the object for which the cloth was to be used. And when she suggested to me that she, the whole of her six foot two inches, should stretch out on the counter and I should cover her with the length of cloth, I pointed out that it might indicate a shroud. So she desisted. We bought our 40 feet, 13 and a half inches to a Chinese foot, 
and they don't know what a yard is except as something which the pigs, chickens and children mingle in at a cost of $14 Chinese national currency, which is the equivalent of about £2.6. We are very happy with our purchase. You will realise that it was the natural thing for me to dash home and immediately start sewing up the bedspread, staying up till all hours until the job was finished. That is exactly what I did. Marge resembles me in many respects, including that little eccentricity. So even if I had wanted to take my time, she would have talked me into immediate completion of the job on hand. I'm having my Chinese painting mounted on a silk scroll so that I can hang it on the wall. I already have several pieces of silver and pottery on my dressing and bedside tables. Of course, our stay here might end at any time, but on the other hand, we might be left here for the full 12 months. But we've taken our chance and are making a real home of our diggings. Incidentally, it is open to me at any time to go back from here and join the economic or legal staff in Shanghai office. At the present time, I would not consider it, and I don't think that they would move me against my will. My big boss, reports officer, seems ready to meet with most of my requests. Yesterday, the staff here took delivery of our sampan. Head office declined to furnish one, even though it is almost indispensable for a proper inspection of lakeside villages, so we've clubbed together and bought one for ourselves. It is really quite a good model, and I'm longing to get at those oars. There are four oars to our sampan, a rudder and a sail. We haven't got the sail yet, but it's on its way. The oaring is done from the standing position, one oarsman forehead and one aft. Looks like a lot of fun to me. I was the mug and went out for a trial jaunt with the Chinese boatman onto the filthy muddy river. It was not till I reached shore again and found there was an argument in progress because the boat builder would not guarantee the boat was seaworthy. I can imagine nothing worse than a plunge into that muck. Marge and I are gardeners and I hope to be here to see some results from our labours. We have tomatoes and radishes set out in seedling boxes, waiting anxiously for some glimmer of life to appear above the soil. And we have nasturtium and morning glory seeds planted in the little bushy hill at the front and side of the house. Hollyhocks and zinnias will go into the front beds just as soon as we are satisfied that the ground has been properly turned over. And lettuce, cabbage and beans have been hopefully placed in our vegetable patch at the back. The Chinese servants think we are just plain crazy to indulge in such hard labour when they are employed to wait on us hand and foot. But the truth of the matter is that we eat so much and so well that we are all putting on more weight than we want. Mum would be happy to see her boo so buxom and rosy, but boo is not quite so happy about it. I must tell you of my public appearance last night. In this city, there is an English-speaking club sponsored by the local YMCA, having about 45 members who always use the English language at the club for their talks and discussions. Incidentally, English is one of the regular subjects at Chinese schools. At the weekly meeting of the club, some person is invited to give an address on a subject chosen by himself, and at the end of it, lead the discussion by answering any questions. And can these boys think up questions? 
I thanked my stars and my parents once again for bringing me up as a lawyer because, after all, the honour of Australia was at stake and I simply could not say, I don't know. Now, could I? I didn't anyway. And they seemed happy enough with the replies. I chose the subject of the education system of Australia, covering high schools, primary schools, day nurseries, etc. Also, correction schools, subnormal schools, agricultural schools, domestic schools, technical schools, universities, free education provided by heavy taxation, medical and nutritional benefits, etc., etc., and still wonder how much of it they understood. Marge said it was okay, and so did J.R. Marlowe, our fat boy, who was the only other UNRWA present. So, I guess it should have gone down. Anyway... They asked a heck of a lot of questions when I had finished. At the end of question time, a Chinese lady teacher, there were only half a dozen women in the audience and about 150 men, struck up a note, no instruments to assist, and led the congregation in some singing of English rounds. Honestly, I felt as if I was back in kindergarten. The song was some silly thing, not as complicated as Three Blind Mice, and they just went on and on and on and on. Eventually, it came to a glorious end. There were votes of thanks and we stumbled gratefully out into the waiting rickshaws. Marge is at me to do some more gardening before dark, so I best be on my way if I want any peace. I'm enclosing a few more snaps to go to Mars's custody. I'm well and happy, even though at times pretty homesick. Lots and lots of love to you all, with an extra bit for yourself. From Bet. Postscript to letter, 17 May 1946. Another highlight of my public address. When I reached the hall, I found great posters each side of the doorway and over the top of same, and two more on the inside notice boards. Some were in English, but mostly in Chinese, with Mrs. Betty Souter fair and square in the middle of every poster in glaring red letters. There was no doubt about who was to be the speaker. Production credits for this episode. Produced and narrated by Warren Henry. Voice of Betty Souter by Helen Polkinghorn. And the featured tune, Shoe Fly Pie and Apple Pan Dowdy, Stan Kenton featuring June Christie from 1946. Shoe fly 
an apple band daddy I never get enough of that wonderful star Apple Pandari. 